Hello and welcome to Society, a show from Chicago where we explore the communities that make up Chicago. I'm Sam. And I'm Lee. Those of you who follow us on social media know that uh, a few weeks ago we had a live episode at Koval Distillery in Ravenswood. Today we're excited to bring you the audio from that interview, uh, as well as our thoughts on kind of how it went down and uh, how we feel about it. Yeah, thank you again to everybody who came out. Um, we've been getting really great feedback on, on how it went and I know we all had a really great time ourselves. Yeah, it was cool to see, too, we had people who had been guests previously on the show uh, showed up. So a lot of the proceeds went to Central Romero, and Katie Maranzano was there representing that community. Uh, that was, I think, episode number three, maybe, <laughs> three or four. Uh, Matthew Crabtree and the Griffins, the rugby team, he was there as well. And David Lasky from Bitbash, uh, he came out, too. So it was cool to see some of those friendly faces. Absolutely. Sam, for people who weren't at the event, do you want to give a quick overview of the history of Koval? Sure. So Koval is the oldest operating distillery in the city of Chicago, and it was the first one open since the repeal of Prohibition. So that means that Chicago went about 75 years without a steady source of locally crafted whiskey, which if you know how much whiskey people in Chicago drink, it's pretty nuts. Um, but there's actually a very long history of distilling in Chicago, and it goes all the way back to 1860. So around the time of the Civil War, there were eight distilleries in Chicago. Business was booming, everybody's getting drunk all the time. But then a little thing called the Chicago Fire happened, and it wiped out a lot of the city, and with it, a lot of the distilleries. Um, you know, the, the community kind of came back a little bit, but then something even worse than the Chicago Fire happened, which was unfettered capitalism and unregulated big business. So, I know, <laughs> force of nature. People in Peoria, Illinois, created the Distillers and Cattle Feeders Trust, which they called the Whiskey Trust. And they would essentially purchase small distilleries and then squash them in order to control supply and create a monopoly on whiskey. So it worked. Uh, they became the whiskey capital of the world in Peoria, which I think is the only time Peoria has ever been the capital of anything. Uh, <laughs> so everything was going well. There was kind of this epic struggle between the Whiskey Trust and small distillers until Prohibition came along, uh, which ironically was championed by the Women's Christian Temperance Union and Frances Willard out of Evanston. So Chicago sort of becomes this whiskey capital and then people in near Chicago help take that away. Prohibition was obviously repealed, but uh, after that there were a bunch of laws and sort of Byzantine regulate, regulations and things like that that made it so people couldn't really distill whiskey or anything in Chicago uh, until Sonnet and the folks at Koval kind of changed that. So funny thing about this live recording, and I was trained on this before the interview, but I kept on calling it the prohibition. Oh. And <laughs> Blake, my boyfriend, was like, Lee, during the live recording, you cannot call it the prohibition. It's like calling it the World War II. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I, I say the prohibition a couple times. <laughs> that is amazing. I, I guess it was the prohibition. Like, how many other prohibitions do you hear about? I think that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes, after the prohibition, uh, Chicago had sort of this this uh, desert of distillers until uh, Koval came along. So, Lee, do you want to tell us a little bit about the founder? For this interview, we talked to Sonnet Burnecker, and her, along with her husband, found Koval 11 years ago. And they are both complete academic. So she has her PhD from the University of London, and then she went on and got her postdoctorate from the University of Oxford. So right away, I was super nervous to talk to her. Cause Me I... too. No, yeah. Lee told us we're doing this live recording, and I immediately was like, oops, imposter syndrome. Like, <laughs> yeah, a little terrifying. <laughs> but she was very nice. She was the sweetest. So... After they found Koval in 2008, um, Sonnet took on the responsibility of all matters relating mostly to product development and distribution and marketing. But obviously she wears a lot more hats than that. She has done pretty much everything over the last 11 years. So after Koval, her and her husband went on and founded Koth Distilling Technologies, which is a consulting firm that has helped over 90 distilleries um, open and become functional uh, across the U.S. and Canada. And they're actually working on some exciting projects abroad as well in Europe right now. If that all isn't impressive enough, uh, she was also just recently named Illinois' Business Person of the Year. 
So Lee, what did you think when we went in there to do the live recording? Because we obviously toured the facility at first and everybody at Koval was very helpful uh, and they facilitated this thing great and their team was awesome. Uh, but what were your thoughts when we went in there on the day to do our first live recording? I mean, it was surreal. I, they had already set up the space beautifully. There's these beautiful barrels of whiskey aging all around the room. And again, thank you so much for the Koval team for being so helpful and warm and welcoming into their space. Yeah, it was, uh, I, you know, I didn't think, at first I was like, oh, imposter syndrome, like, I'm going to be nervous. And then the, I was like, you know what, I'm not going to be nervous. This is going to be fine. And then, yeah, 30 people showed up and <laughs> were all looking at us and I hit record and I was like, what the hell do I say now? <laughs> it was Sam's biggest job. He had to push record. <laughs> I know, that's the most important thing I was there for. It was just hitting that big button. But no, it was really cool and it was nice to see people coming out and, and listening and tasting whiskey. There was also whiskey for taste mm -hmm. there. Um, so that was pretty cool. And the conversation with Sonnet I thought was delightful. She was super fun to talk to. I'm honestly excited to listen to this episode because I think I blacked out a lot of it. <laughs> like I was just, I have to be, I know we can't edit this episode. So I had to, you know, have my shit together and be really focused. And I, I honestly don't remember a lot of the conversations. So, but I hear, I hear it went great. <laughs> I told her uh, after the interview, I said, thanks for bailing us out because when it was me, Patrick and Lee, we were all so nervous. We just kind of <laughs> panicked uh, up there for the intro. So it was a little rough. Uh, we cut that part out, though. Um, so you now get this delightful banter. But I said to Sonnet, thanks for, for bailing us out. Because I feel like once she got there, she was very smart and articulate. Yeah. Uh, and was like. And then Sam and I had to be smart and articulate that. <laughs> Rise to the occasion. She was really slumming it, talking to us yokels. <laughs> All right, enough with us. Uh, here's our live recording with Sonnet from Cobalt. Thank you. Thanks. So good to be here. <laughs> I would hope so. It's your distillery. <laughs> Very true. I'm here again. Yeah. I do have to give a quick shout out to your team. It was so incredibly easy to get this set up. Like I shot this email out there. Like, hey, any chance you want to interview with us? Because and I was like, they're... anyone. I don't care if they've worked there for five months. Like anybody on the show. And they're like, like a day later. Yeah, no problem. We'll just have the founder come sit in Sam's kitchen and, and talk to you. Yeah. Absolutely. It's because they're awesome. They are great. <laughs> um, so we obviously are here to talk about distillers in Chicago, and we are definitely going to talk about Cobol along the way. But to start, I want to hear a little bit about you and how you ended up in Chicago to begin with, because you're not from here, correct? I am. In fact, I was kind of the Chicago Dorothy, and I had these slippers, and I kept putting them together, and I, it didn't get me back to Chicago. <laughs> it just wasn't working. So I had to figure out my own route back, which was via academia. So I was a professor for many years in Germany as well as in uh, on the East Coast. And my husband and I had gotten to the point where we'd saved enough money for a down payment on a home. It was $30,000. And we were house hunting in the D.C. area. And, you know, the, the homes in our price range were a little bit dodgy. As <laughs> and uh, after one sort of moldy basement, my husband and I, like, ran out of the house quickly. with like, like, Faces covered. <laughs> Fumigated. Exactly. And, you know, we said, you know, maybe we just want to move back to Chicago. But we had pretty set careers. I mean, I had tenure. My husband was the deputy press secretary for the Austrian embassy, which is a lot of fun because Friday is coffee and kuchen. Um, <laughs> but we decided that, that maybe life is about a lot of things. And one of the things that is incredibly important is where you want to be. And, uh, and our careers seemed, they were great, but it seemed like we wanted to be in Chicago more. So we decided forget health insurance, you know, all these things. And we called my mom and said, you know, we're moving back to Chicago, which she was very happy about. And then I said, we're moving in with you. Um, and she was okay with that too. And then we took that down payment and we bought a still and uh, started this distillery. So it was really, that was, this distillery was our route back to Chicago. So, you know. Academia does lead you to drink. Okay. 
this this led me to making it. So <laughs> we're happy you came back. Um, yeah. And your husband was he have any roots in Chicago? Did he just blindly trust you to come back to these winters? <laughs> you, you know, he decided he really thought Chicago was great, which was good because you know this. I honestly, I was kicking those. You know, it would have been really weird after a while. I would kept kicking my heels together. And, um, so it was good that that he liked Chicago and that we could decide to move here together. He was also pretty passionate about being in Chicago because it's just such a great city. So he's from Austria, though, from uh, where the hills are alive <laughs> with the sound of music. That's my mom's favorite movie. <laughs> really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, there's some catchy little tunes in that. <laughs> and if I'm not mistaken, his family has background in the distilling business as well, correct? Yes, yes. He comes from about three generations of distillers. Um, it's more common. In fact, Austria has probably, I think, 10 times as many distillers as we have in the United States. And it's a small country. <laughs> um, and uh, so he grew up doing it. It was chores for him. He didn't, he, and then he went and got a PhD and you know, didn't necessarily think that he would then go into distilling, which was what he did as chores as a teenager. But uh, it's, it was the way back to Chicago. So it, was, it all worked out. Did you ever think that your career path would end, end up with you founding Cobol? Or how did that come to be? I, I would say it was. It would not have been likely, you know. It, it, well, it wouldn't have been something I would have thought I would do. I am happy I did it, and and as I was in the process of figuring it out, it you know it was very exciting, and so it seemed like, sure, why not? You know, I mean, life has many chapters, and I feel that you can do something and do something for a while and do it really well, and then decide, you know what, maybe there's something else I want to add to this story. So this was this was kind of a, a scene change, you know, very much so. But uh, you know, you never throw anything away. We use a lot of the skills that we developed in our other careers all the time. Can I ask what you studied or what you taught? Sure, I did um, German and Austrian cultural history, and I focused on Jewish studies and women's studies. So, and mostly literary history. So a lot of Kafka, which comes okay. in really handy when you're dealing with the liquor industry. <laughs> <Yeah>. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's 2007, 2008, and mm -hmm. you guys decide you're going to open a distillery in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Lo and behold, there is not a single distillery in the state of Illinois at this point, correct? Right. Well, there, there was a, a rectifier. Actually, there's a, there was a big distillery downstate, but it's an industrial facility that I think is owned by Diageo, but I'm, I could be wrong. Um, and then there was a North Shore distillery in Lake Bluff, I think. They, and they were rectifiers at the okay. time. What is a, yeah. What's a rectifier? It's where you take um, uh, a alcohol and then you um, you, you make all sorts of things with it. You can make gin with it. You can you can do all like a lot of stuff, mostly gin, vodka, things like that. So cool. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I said cool. Sorry, everybody drink. Yeah. <laughs> So what was the, I guess, environment? Uh, there wasn't a distillery community. So I guess what were the first steps in order to get this up and running and, and kind of who helped you along the way? Well, I will say Chicago is the city that works because it, this would not have happened in a lot of places uh, at that time. And I know because we've set up a lot of people through our consulting arm all over the United States and a lot of places are very, very difficult to get this kind of business up and running. What I did, having come from Chicago, I knew that if you wanna do something, you really need to reach out to your alderman first. So I wrote a number of letters to the alderman in the parts of town that I thought could work for a distillery you know, um, and two aldermen responded. One was faster than the other. So it was uh, all Gene Schulter. He was quick on the draw. He not only responded, he like called me up on the phone and he said, I love this idea. This is what we need in our ward. This is what the city needs. And I got a guy and he's got a space and I want you to look at it. I think you'll like it. So uh, well, I guess I'm doing this now. There you, there you go. I was like, well, there you have it. You know, so we literally came to Chicago, met his guy. This was like one weekend. Came to Chicago, met his guy, this space, and uh, and his guy was lovely, uh, Joe Hayes. He owns a lot of properties on the Ravenswood corridor. He's been great 
to small business owners and manufacturers, um, providing them reasonable, you know, with reasonable rent, uh, you know, in a great part of town that that you know um, could be difficult to afford. And when we came in here, and we're like, oh, it's great, but it's kind of big. You know, we we thought it was too big for us, and we're like, maybe we could split it down the middle. He's like, look, just take the whole thing, you know, and I'll I'll reduce the price. So he was a good guy. Yeah. Seriously, how many bottles of cobalt does he get? Uh, yeah, yeah, I believe me. <laughs> no, he's, he's really sweet. So it was really the city was, and the people, it was just beshert, which is, just means it was meant to be. So it was just so right. Gene Schulter was amazing, and he was very helpful, and then Joe Hayes was helpful. And, you know, those kinds of allies made it largely possible because, you know, it was kind of iffy as to whether it was really completely kosher, oh. you know, to do it. I mean, there were some laws that, I mean, there weren't, the problem was there weren't any laws really because they hadn't been changed since prohibition. So it wasn't not legal, but it wasn't really necessarily completely like, yes, you can do it, go ahead. <laughs> um, and so what we did is, you know, we, we sort of started it, and Gene was a big supporter, and we got it going, and then right away we started working on creating laws to make it, yes, this is legal, and this is the license you need to fill out. Did he, so. did he have a guy for that, too? Like, this is my... Brewer, oh, there, my distillery guy, this is my law guy. Oh, let me tell you, there were a lot of guys for that. <laughs> so, and, but, you know, but then there was Heather Steens, uh, not a guy, but amazing woman who really championed not just creating this craft distiller's license that, um, that we created, but she has been a huge supporter of this industry in the state of Illinois. So she's been instrumental in, in getting this done. So, Yeah, it really comes through that you really had to figure out every piece of it, stuff that other <laughs> distillers, I imagine, today take for granted around this is already in place and there's a model to, to do this and it's legal, fully legal. Yeah. <laughs> and And... Yeah, we could follow that. So I know you mentioned your consulting company a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, how did that come to be? <laughs> uh, well, and maybe give a brief overview of what it is. And sure, sure. What you do. <laughs> right. So uh, Robert and I also started Cota Distilling Technologies. So we are a consulting firm that uh, that helps people start distilleries, basically everywhere. Uh, we also teach people how to distill. We've done uh, white labels, so, you know, uh, for other brands as well, big brands as well as, like, smaller brands all over the U.S., and set up distilleries from Uganda to Jerusalem to, you know, very small towns in Finland and all across the United States and a lot of distilleries actually in Illinois and the Midwest. And it came about because when we started, I mean, it was just me and Robert, all day long, doing everything, every last everything. Um, and, you know, we had a baby at the time. And, you know, when somebody called Koval, it was, you know, my cell phone. And so yeah, I'd be nursing or reading Sylvester and the Magic Pebble and trying to do mashing. <laughs> and then all of a sudden somebody would call and say, I, re I read about you in the paper. I've been distilling, you know, for years in my back. I'm like, don't say that too loudly. <laughs> Um, and, and they said, well, can you tell me like how to go legit? And I, you know, you know, and I didn't want to be rude and I'd be like, okay, well basically, you know, and then I would get a crick in my neck and I'd be like talking to these people and carrying a baby and then trying to distill and then answering emails. And after a while we realized that they were, we were getting about 10 of these calls a week if not more. Wow. There are a lot of apparent like backyard distillers <laughs> in Illinois. So we then realized that, you know, that was not sustainable. Literally, I'd be, like, shopping for groceries, and I would say, you know, uh, can, you know, I, I'm shopping right now. They're like, no, that's okay. Just shop, and I'll just ask you questions. And I mean, it was like... This is not okay. <laughs> right. It was, it was really getting intense. And so we decided, you know, we'd actually accumulated a lot of knowledge, and so we said, you know what? 
come to our workshop. And so that's really how it started. Uh, we also had the added benefit at the time that our TTB officer, which is like the inspector, federal inspector, happened to live two blocks away from here. So we were always seeing our inspector, which is, you know, not like we were doing anything wrong, but you still get like palpitations when the inspector For comes sure. by, you know, <laughs> with the book, you know. Um, and But he was lovely. And so he partnered up with us to help other people, you know, with this is what you have to do legally uh, from a federal standpoint. So it was, it just all worked out and then it grew and then we also needed to use our intellectual capital to be able to buy more equipment. And so we offered the uh, still company, you know, to translate their website in, from German into English and then to represent them and maybe they'll give us a discount. <laughs> and, um, and so then that turned into another part of this consulting is that then we got to know all the manufacturers. We decided to represent them here. And, and then that became an added value to anybody that would come to our workshops is that we could help them, we could set them up with all the equipment. And then we did that with bottling lines and fermenters. And we got to know lots of manufacturers in Europe. And that's sort of how it all happened. It was just, I wanted to shop for groceries in peace. Yeah. <laughs> like, I made this consulting <laughs> right. company so people would leave me alone. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Are there still a lot of like backyard distillers in Illinois, or is it typically now more global? Oh, there are backyard distillers <laughs> everywhere, for sure. I mean, you know, there are, right now, it's not legal to be a home distiller. It's actually a federal offense, just so you know. No, it's, um, but you do have a lot of people that still sell equipment. You know, it's not illegal to buy the equipment. So now that distilling has become so much more popular and people are more interested in it and they see that there are local distillers in their communities they kind of want to try their hand at it a little bit so i mean i've heard of i don't know any names but i've heard that you know i know there are people that do it and are you still getting phone calls while you're grocery shopping <laughs> no luckily now they, it gets sort of channeled okay. but you know <laughs> people for that right right <laughs> So it, it does sound like you single-handedly with your husband created the distilling community in Chicago and much broader than that. Do you agree with that? We were definitely involved. I mean, I think that there are other people <laughs> that were also involved. I mean, Bill Owens, he started the American Distilling Institute in California. Um, I remember, you know, we went to some of his early conferences and that was really groundbreaking. Uh, so, I mean, there were, there were a lot of people that, I mean, I wouldn't say there were a lot of people, certainly not at that time. There were not many people <laughs> at all. Um, and certainly not that many courses or ways to educate yourself, but there were people that had recognized that the industry was coming and that we're providing a lot of resources for it. So we're happy that we were able to contribute to it. Certainly. Was there a point when like the laws shifted and you were like, we did it. Like, yes, we can do it. Or is it still like a kind of a constant battle? There's always a law that you want to shift. You know? <laughs> I mean, after we got the first law passed, that was monumental. I mean, that made it possible for us to do this. I mean, we could not do tours, tastings. We couldn't retail. None of that was possible. That whole front area was a child playpen. Like, there, there was, like, books and squishy mats, and people would come by and say, can I sign my kids up? And I'd say, we're a distillery. <laughs> um, you know, because they, they quite literally thought it was, like, uh, you know, a daycare center. So, but once that law changed, uh, then we were able to do all of these things. And so that was huge. And then that made it possible for there to be other kinds of businesses. If you want to talk about the whole industry at large, I mean... Then you had businesses that, you know, weren't like us necessarily focused almost, you know, entirely on distribution. So we make a lot of alcohol and we sell it. And we sell it all over the world to 55 export markets. So that is our focus, really. There are other distilleries that we've helped set up and there are other distilleries, you know, certainly in, in the Midwest that that is not their business model. And, and when Illinois changed these laws, it also made it possible for people to have almost like a distillery pub. And you have places like Chicago Distilling Company. We, we help them and, and uh, they have a great place in Logan Square. And then you've got CH, you know, that, that have a, a really wonderful bar experience uh, attached to their distillery. They also now have a much larger distillery. But 
those types of bar distillery experiences would not have been possible. It sounds really unique that you would <laughs> proactively and like uh, enthusiastically help what would become your competition here in Chicago. What, I guess, what helped you make that decision to kind of open the gates and share your knowledge and let everybody in? And then, I guess, do you think that that shaped how you interact with everybody now today? Well, sure. I think part of it was we're educators. I mean, I was a professor and I love teaching. So mm -hmm. I didn't want to throw that away. So no, I just teach about whiskey. Um, but the the other thing was is, is I think, you know, opening to everybody was beneficial to everyone. You know, it's like once, you know, Paul set up few, then, you know, the suburbs were alive and excited by, you know, craft spirits. And, um, and then they were more interested in trying other ones, you know, and then you go, Peoria now also has craft distilleries, you know, that, and Peoria, as you said, was such an important place for distilling, but for a long time, it, they didn't even have a distillery, and now they're going to have a distillery, and then, you know, Whiskey Acres, you know, they're, they've got a farm, and a farm distillery, so, and, you know, the Blom Brothers in uh, Galena, they have sort of like a high street distillery, you know, where you go to one of these cute high streets and you have, you buy your marmalade and you get your, you know, chili and you, chili paste or something. And then you go, you get your whiskey too. I mean, it's, it's like, these are all very different kinds of businesses and business models. And they're all very important because it gets people excited about the whole industry. And I think that that, you know, rising tide, all rises, all ships. And so in that vein, I think that it was only beneficial for everybody. And we also had the added impetus that making sure everybody did it well was a good idea. So if people were coming from completely different backgrounds, which was the case for a lot of people, I mean, you know, Mississippi River, I think one of the head distillers was originally a weatherman, you know, and you had that you know, people came from so many fun, different backgrounds um, that got passionate about distilling, but, uh, you know, they needed to learn how to do it. And Robert actually is fantastic at distilling, and he knows what he's doing. And he's really happy to share that with other people to make sure that their products are really good. And so we are thrilled when, you know, people that we've taught or other students do really well, because we're like, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's sort of like, they're, they're like part of the, the team. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so how many distilleries are there now in Chicago? Oh, goodness. You know, um, that's a very good question. <laughs> I, I would say they're probably, I mean, and it's growing all the time. You know, I, I would not know the exact number. I would know the names of all the distilleries. You know, you've got Rhine Hall, you've got CH, Chicago Distilling Company. There's another one um, that's also part starting a brewery, too, that we were working with. I mean, there are so many, and then there are all the ones downstate and upstate, so there, there are more all the time. There's one in Brookfield by Brookfield Zoo. Um, the name is escaping me, but... There, there's so many, and they're all fun and do unique things, and they bring spice to the market. So it's great. So whiskey is obviously a product that, in nature, takes a long time to produce. <laughs> the more you age it, the theoretically the better it is, and, and everything like that. How theoretically, <laughs> I could be wrong. You, Tell the them, spill the secrets. <laughs> um, but so Koval's 11 years old. Mm -hmm. Everybody is a little bit younger than you. Right. How has that changed the community in Chicago? You know, what were you first putting out in the time that you were waiting for your whiskey to age? And I guess right. how, as you guys mature, get older and get to kind of release those products, how does that kind of shape how you guys do business? Well, you know, it depends. There are a lot of different ways to get into this business and approach the business. Um, and there are ways to sort of simplify things in the beginning. There are a lot of distilleries that we've helped get started or that really do want to just focus on rectification. Um, because then they don't have to bring in grain and mash the grain. And, um, you know, it just adds a, a whole other step. And maybe they don't even want to make whiskey. So... Uh, a lot of a lot of people can start with sort of a vodka and a gin, um, but I think that 
you know, it really, it really just depends. <laughs> what was the question again? Like specifically, I'm sorry. You see, I, there's, I don't get a lot of sleep. So sometimes, you know, I'm like, yeah, you know, there, there are a lot of ways to do this. <laughs> I can talk about all of them. <laughs> just remind me which one I'm talking no, no, about. No, no, no. You kind of, you kind of already kind of answered it, but I, I guess in a industry where uh, the kind of the longer you're established right the different the well I think that that's of that that you know that's in my opinion which I think is the right way to look at this <laughs> is is the wrong way so. yeah which is the wrong way to approach this industry the truth of the matter is is that you can make anything and uh, it, it the amount of time it is aged does not categorically make it better and so the, the truth of the matter is, is that when you are making a distillate, what comes off the still needs to be great. Because if it isn't, you know, you can age it for a very long time and it will still be inferior to something that came off the still better and aged for less. And so what, you know, a lot, you keep in mind, a lot of what people know about whiskey is what they've been fed by very, very large companies with very, very large budgets for marketing that uh, it was in their best interest to get people to think about whiskey in a certain way. And it's not necessarily wrong. You know, whiskey that's aged for a very long time can taste fabulous and it's wonderful. But whiskey that's been aged a year can also taste fabulous or wonderful, or whiskey that hasn't been aged at all can be amazing and wonderful. And what makes the difference is that the product itself needs to be distilled in a way that there are no bad chemical compounds, so to speak, um, that are in the end distillate. And they're, 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 you know, it comes off the still heads, hearts, and tails. Heads, a lot of bad chemicals, uh, make you go blind and crazy, uh, kind of stuff you have in fuel for monster trucks. Oh. You do not want that. Um, in Europe, they use it for as mold removal, okay? But that should never be in a distillate, okay, that you would drink. Then you have the hearts. That's pure ethanol. And that's just like the filet of the distillate. And that is what I consider to be the cleanest, brightest, best portion of what you are making. Then you have the tails. And here's where things get dicey. Okay? <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat right now. I know. Because the tails, they're not bad for you. And my kids would say in quote marks because I know we don't have viewers, so I yeah. wanted to make that clear. For all listeners, not, she's right. making air quotes. Qu air quotes. <laughs> not bad for you in the same sense as the heads are very bad for you, but they taste and smell like a wet dog. Partly because the, chem the, the alcohol content gets less and less as it's coming off the still, and then you start getting different chemical compounds after the pure ethanol, similar to what you would get in, there's some, some of the same compounds as you'd get in vinegar, for example. Some of the same compounds that you have that are, that are very bready, which could be good. Um, so they're called the long ends, they're the fusel oils. And some companies want some of that in their product because of the flavors that they impart, okay? And the, I'm not saying that they're necessarily, you know, all, it, all bad, it will change the nature uh, or taste of the hearts if you add them, it will. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad, and then you put it in a barrel, and it will have a particular character. That being said, the unpleasant characteristics of that require longer in a barrel to mellow, okay? There are some companies that want to put lots of tails and mix them in with the heart cut because they get more volume, okay? So, and then they will age it in a barrel, and it will mellow, it will, and then maybe caramel coloring is added. They don't have to tell you. Whoa. Yeah. So, um, I told you liquor is really, really <laughs> wild, so let me tell you. Um, but it's one of the most controlled substances in the United States, and there are no ingredients on the bottle. <laughs> Makes you wonder. Anyway. So there you go. Um, you know, you think vodka is pure, huh? Well, 
a lot of vodka is full of glycerol and sugar and citric acid, and they don't have to tell you. So these are some of the tricks, you know, of the trade. And so, you know, it really depends on, on how you use the tails, how you distill, what you add, like what, you know, all of these are factors. If you create, and what we tried to do is we took on the way of making whiskey that a brandy maker would make brandy in Europe. A brandy maker in Europe works with pears or apricots. And it is, for them, very important to only use the heart cut of the distillate. They feel that if you have tails in your brandy, it would muddy the flavor of the purity of the fruit. And Robert comes from Austrian distillers. And so we said, well, gee, let's give rye the same attention as you, your grandpa gives an apricot, you know? And so that's how we focused on the heart cut approach to distilling, and that's something that we've taught a lot of distillers. And maybe some do that, a lot of them do uh, in the craft scene, but some of them might you know, use some of the tails for flavor because they like it, and that's fine. Um, but I would say you know, it's a lot of craft distillers, they're not necessarily going for volume. You know, so it's, it's a different, craft distillers have the luxury in a way to do things differently, which I think is great. I taste great, <laughs> so I agree. Cheers. Um, okay, so how do you and other of those, these kind of smaller craft distilleries combat some of those, you know, notions of, of what good liquor is? Right. It's a lot of education, you know, it's, you know, sometimes, you know, we'll go to, uh, also it really depends. You know, I think the American whiskey scene is, has become very interested in a lot of the craft whiskeys and recognize that, that it can be great and it doesn't need to be 12 years or, you know, 25 years or 28 years. And also a lot of that comes from Scotland, you know, and the Scotch tradition of you know, aging, and, and they've done amazing job at marketing, and they've got a lot of great products, but in imparting this idea that the older it is, the more expensive it should be, and the better it is. It's not always the case. You know, I've been at many different events where I've tried much older whiskeys compared to younger ones, and the younger one was better, you know? So it, and at the end of the day, truth be told, it's a matter of personal preference. So... You know, that's another thing. Okay. <laughs> so something we talk a lot about on our podcast is um, the impact of Chicago Pride. It's something that our city has that is, you can debate no other city in the country has as strongly as we do. Um, we talked to our tattoo artist once and asked her how many Chicago-themed tattoos she's done, and she just, like, laughed at us. She's like, way too many. Um, but... I, they're coming back to Koval, it's very clear that you guys have steered into that. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like there's a lot of Chicago pride that comes through in your branding, yeah. <laughs> your flag, um, and, and everything. But as you kind of become more of an international brand, I, I guess what decision went into having the Chicago pride come through your product? Well, it can't not come through the product. I mean, every bottle is an ambassador that says handmade in Chicago, you know, so in that sense, it's very, we want that. It's on the front. We care very much about uh, our roots. That being said, you know, it, it goes the other way. You know, when we're in Japan or when we're in Taiwan or when we're in Australia, you know, Chicago's interesting, but it's not going to be a main selling point necessarily. But what it does is all the other main selling points of this is a very high quality product. It uses only the heart cut of the distillate, uses all organic ingredients. We work with a cooperative of organic farmers. Those are the kinds of things that resonate. And then they think about, oh, and this is made in Chicago. And then hopefully it gives Chicago a little bit of a something. We want people to think that Chicago is a place for great spirits because we have great spirit in the city. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so then, I'm sorry, did you? you <laughs> um, no, so I'm wondering if you still do some of those like outreach events and things like that. You'd mentioned kind of starting with these workshops here in your space. Are you doing other kind of outreach things like that in the city or? Well, 
What's also very important to us and why it's so great that we're here and in support of uh, such a wonderful organization this evening is that a large part of what we want to do at Koval is also give back to our community. So we try and do at least around 365 charitable events or donations a year. It's a huge part of our DNA as a company. It's also because I want to model good behaviors to my children and say, you know, we're doing this this week. Um, it's important to give back. Um, and they say, well, who are we supporting this week? And, and then I'll tell them and they might be coming they might be becoming hypochondriacs because they're learning about a lot of problems and diseases, but, um, but at least they know that, that there, there's, you know, the world is, has got a lot of, of, it needs a lot of mending. So we're in the business of good cheer and happy times. And if we can turn that around and help other organizations mend the world in one way or another, we're, we're game. Is that, I guess, sense of ethos and values is that something that's unique to Koval, or do you see that across the distillery community? You know, I don't know what everybody else does, just because, you know, we don't really look at what other people are doing, to be honest, because we're so busy all the time. <laughs> I mean, that's why I need more sleep, you know, but, but um, I'm sure, I'm sure they do some. I know a lot of the breweries do that as well. Um, it's, it's just, it's been very important to us, so, and we hope other people do it too, and you know, we try and encourage anybody we know to do it. Do you have a favorite spirit you've made here? Oh, that's very tricky. Only because for me, it's almost like music or perfume. It's sort of, it, it can evoke like a different time or moment, you know? It's like, you know, I listen to, you know, Depeche Mode and all of a sudden I'm 20, you know? <laughs> it's like, ha. Huh. But if, if I go have like a certain drink, I remember, oh, that was that conversation, or oh, that was that time, or oh, I wore that dress. But, you know, it's, it, there are these like little time markers or time capsules. And so I try and drink a lot of our different products at different times so that I can use them as little happy markers for, for the future. Cool. Um, has your husband's family visited the distillery? Are they, does it live yes. up to the standards? Oh, absolutely. His grandfather, it's actually funny. His grandfather's was, when we first started, his grandfather was 80 years old. Does not speak a word of English and, and minimal high German. So like mostly dialect. And he had never been out of the country except once to come to our wedding. And he was with family members who like brought him to our wedding. But when we were starting, he wanted to come. And so he got on a plane and there was like, there was a change. Like he had to like change planes. We were like, oh my God, like <laughs> we were a little worried. And so he like came and he was so excited. And then he wanted to like help out. And he came actually wearing like his outfit, like ready to work. <laughs> it was so sweet. We're like, don't you want to rest? He's like, it's still daytime, you know? <laughs> He's like, let's go to the distillery. And he would like work and, and this was like early days. And we'd actually just gotten a shipment of pears. We made a pear brandy and we had seven tons of pears. Which is, <laughs> let me tell you, that's a lot, a of, lot pears. of pears. We had stacks, like literally to the roof here, of pears. And uh, we had ordered them in an inopportune time because we tried to get them locally, actually. Here's a funny thing also, like the, the, the seedy side of organics, you know, is that we tried to get them locally, but they sold them all to Whole Foods. Oh, oh. a, a very large company. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> You know, or a supply, you know, and so we could, we couldn't get them locally. So we ordered them from Washington state originally and they were on a train and the weather was turning and we're like, Oh, it's getting colder. And then the, the train was coming and I'm looking at the weather and we're like, it's getting colder. I hope they don't freeze. And of course they froze, you know? And so when that happens, you have to process them in like 24 hours. And so his grandfather landed actually at a very good time because we actually were going to be working like. 24 hours straight. And so his grandfather like got off, we helped, we were, we were, my parents were there, like my, everybody, we were all like taking the stems off and checking for bad spots and, cause you can't have anything with like even a scrape or a bad spot because then it will like wreck the whole batch, you know? So there you go. So we were working all night long and, and we had a, uh, our baby. And so I would, I would leave at like 11 o'clock at night to, you know, be home with the baby and everything. And Robert would get back at two in the morning with his grandfather. And then we'd all leave early in the morning. But at breakfast, 
you know, his grandfather was sitting there and, and I mean, this guy was tough. Like, they we're like, don't you have jet lag? He's like, what's jet lag? I don't know what that is. <laughs> and, so, and, and so we're sitting there and my mom's giving everyone orange juice and, and Robert's like sipping it kind of like it's hot, you know, kind of like really tired. And, uh, and his grandfather's like, oh, fine. And, and, and Robert says, boy, I feel really old. And his grandfather's like, I have not felt so young in years. <laughs> so it was great. So he approves. He totally approves. <laughs> Um, so, so just to kind of come back to the city of Chicago a little bit, um, don't laugh at me. Um, so you mentioned that Chicago is a city that you can do anything in. Yes. Um, but at the same time, there was laws that you had to change and work with, you know, local government to figure out and everything else. I guess today in 2019, how is Chicago supporting or potentially hindering your business? And the distilleries. I have nothing but like glowing reviews for Chicago. I mean, at least when it comes to my business. Okay. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, everybody from you know the the planning department, the the uh, building department, the liquor department. I mean, they're amazing. And you know what's truly amazing about them is they can be scary, but what they do is they make you realize and they want you to know that they are here to work for you. They are helping you and they don't want to be scary. And, and actually they're not, they're very friendly and they want to help you succeed. And I truly get that feeling from all of these departments. I mean, from when we expanded out of this building, we were looking for another building. You know, I, I cornered uh, at the time, uh, Mayor Emanuel, and, and I said, you know, we can't find a space. And he's like, yeah, call my office, you know. I, I do that voice whenever I'm talking about it. It's so weird. Uh, they don't all talk like that, but I feel like anybody in power in Chicago is like, call my office. You know, uh, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> exactly, for sure. And, and, he's, and, he's, and the next day, you know, I had somebody calling me right away saying, you know, we want to help you, and we're going to help you look for a space. And, you know, there's this large plot of land that maybe you'd like, you know, we could give it to you for free if you clean it up. But, uh, you know, <laughs> that was the pricey part. Um, but, I mean, everyone was really, really helpful. And so I feel that... Part of the problem is I think some people don't go through the right channels and then they're not getting the right kind of assistance that they need and then it can be frustrating or they're not, um, they may be hitting a wall one way or the other. And I feel that with regard to the city, it's so clear, you know, you've got your alderman and they are your advocate and then they help you navigate and then you have all the departments in the city, and they are amazing at, at, at uh, helping you as well. And I mean, we live in a great city. I mean, it has its issues, but honestly, I mean, to be able to start something like this, and we've seen what it's like to start things like this in other cities. And honestly, I'm so glad that my non-Ruby slippers, uh, my, my, my <laughs> alcohol trail got me to Chicago because <laughs> because this was the right place to be, and uh, I don't think any city could have done it better. Great. So if people are interested in learning more about distilling, or maybe they want to get involved in some capacity, how would you recommend they do that? Well, they could come to one of our workshops. Yes, there you go. Um, yeah, so Cota Distilling Technologies, we offer workshops, but I feel that in general, you know, like with anything, and this is, you know, I, I, in our workshops, I'm sort of the tough love portion of it because a lot of people want to do things, but they don't recognize how much work goes into it. So I always want to be very clear and upfront about what it takes to actually do not just this business, but any business, you know, to really get it up and running in this business in particular, because, you know, we have so much documentation that goes into every single step of what we do. And if you are going to be selling alcohol across the United States, it's as if you are selling to a different country, every single state, because every state has different liquor laws and they all make you do different things and register things in different ways and get different licenses and make sure your labels are registered 
registered and your products are registered and is your distributor registered? And some have multiple layers of distributors and some have brokers that work with distributors. And honestly, it is like a labyrinth. So I would really look, do the homework and find out, you know, what are the liquor laws? Is that going to work for the kind of business you want to do? In Illinois, obviously, we've made the liquor laws so much better and uh, business friendly. But in other states, they're not always as, you know, as good as they could be. Um, and so looking into that, figuring out what business environment, and then reaching out to the various you know, people in charge, so from your alderman or, you know, your local community. It depends. In different parts of Illinois, it's different. You know, they don't, there aren't aldermen everywhere in Illinois. Ah, you know, Justin. <laughs> only so many just in Chicago, in right, right. Although maybe in Peoria, you know. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, going through your local council and figuring things out from there. And what if people want to learn more about Koval that might not be sitting in our audience tonight? How can they can they come check out the distillery? What can they Absolutely. do? Absolutely, uh, they can come and meet with uh, with us uh, at fifty one twenty one North Ravenswood Avenue. This is. Uh, this is where we do tours, tastings. People can just come in and, and have a taste, um, chat with, with us. We're very friendly. <laughs> <laughs> um, or check us out online at covaldistillery.com. Awesome. And again, you've been around for 11 years. What's, what's in store for the next 11? Ooh, well, uh, the next phase is going to be expansion. So we are going to be um, moving everything over to our main production facility, which is just up the street. It's still on Malt Row, uh, so we'll be very much uh, part of Malt Row. Uh, and we will have tours there, tastings, um, you know, a little cafe type area as well. So, yeah, so we're hoping to have that open this winter, probably late winter. Um, and then the consulting arm, uh, right. have you opened any recent distilleries or is there any plans there to, to... Oh yeah, absolutely. We, we, uh, my husband just got back from Jerusalem opening the first distillery in Jerusalem. Um, since, you know, a few thousand years, no. <laughs> um, and I think there was wine somewhere. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> For sure. Um, and, uh, he opened up, uh, the largest rum distillery in Uganda and there are a bunch more on the horizon, so all over Europe and yeah, so we'll, we'll continue to do that. It's fun, it's broadening the community. <laughs> yeah. um, kind of final question. Um, sure. Is there, if there's like a sentiment you can share with the Chicago distilling community, what would it be? Oh, uh, the warmth we get after a sip of whiskey. I mean, that's the sentiment I have. I'm just so happy to be part of it in this great city and that other people get to experience this kind of fun industry that we're in. So cheers all around. That's my sentiment. <laughs> all right. Cheers all around, I think. I don't know if you guys drank all your tastings, but cheers. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for being on. Pleasure. Thank you. All right, everyone, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Society. And thank you again so much to the Cobalt team for all of your support in putting on this event. We had a great time. If you like what you hear, please rate, review us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. You can email us at societypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear about other communities we should talk to. Uh, who knows? We might even have another live event if you can put up with us. Uh, you can tweet at us at SocietyPod. You can find us on Instagram at Society. Please let us know what you think. And if you have questions, comments, or smart remarks, feel free to reach out. Um, I'm Sam. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> no. How the fuck do we end these? <laughs> you want to just say thanks for listening? We don't even have to say we're Lee and Sam. They know who we are.